Good morning, everyone. It is always a pleasure to be up here opening up God's word with God's people. And I will say, I was sitting in the second service and marveling at how applicable or how related so much of what we heard this morning will be to what I will talk about today. So we're in Exodus chapter 12, verses 21 to 30. I've entitled my message, A New Slavery, Then and Now. And so in 2008, my stepfather passed away, and he and my mother lived in a fairly large house. And my mother wanted to downsize. So Maria and I, we were going through closets, we were going through cabinets, helping her get rid of stuff, etc. And one of the things I came across in a cabinet was, this is the side of a little small box, barely bigger than an index card in terms of width and, and depth, but it was a little box with a Bible in it. And I was like, okay, this is kind of interesting. And the front of the Bible in there had my stepfather's father's name on it, Harry Lever, my stepfather's father. So I then go ahead and I open the front of the Bible and see that this was apparently a gift to my stepfather's father on Christmas Day of 1949. And it is from Albert and Margaret Nobel of the Nobel Resins Company. Now, my stepfather's father was an engineer and maybe there was chemical resins he used in his business and he knew these people or perhaps it was just a flat out gift. And in fact, Albert Nobel, you can look him up on the, on the internet and find out some interesting things about him, but that's a different story. However, what was further written inside of this Bible captured my interest even more. Someone wrote in the inside front of the Bible, the Messiah of Israel is prophet, priest, king and creator and cited scriptures and even more applicable to our message today the next page right in the middle there it said messiah our passover is sacrifice for us citing first corinthians 5 7 so you know we come up with these interesting catchy things at the as we're studying and this i didn't even know where this was i had to go dig through a bunch of boxes in our house to find this little bible but i'm glad i did because i think it's perfect to kind of tee up today's message and I'll just say that in my study of Exodus chapter 12, and in particular verses 21 through 30, I have been absolutely blown away by the significance of this chapter, Exodus chapter 12, in redemptive history. I can't, I, I kept studying, I was almost studying too much, and I eventually had to actually put together a message. But I encourage everybody here, especially because at least next week we're still going to be in Exodus 12, drink deeply from the well that is Exodus 12. The details, the theology, what it shows us about God, what it shows us about man's need for a redeemer. I certainly wish I had more time to show you everything I studied, but unfortunately, I have about 45 minutes or so. So anyway, let's jump in to Exodus chapter 12, right in the middle. And, and in the lead up to Exodus chapter 12, of course, we've been studying the plagues, the plagues. And to this point, we've been through nine of the 10 plagues on Egypt. We know that in response to many of them, 
Pharaoh hardened his heart. The whole idea of these plagues was God applying increasing amounts of pressure, if you will, to Pharaoh to let the sons of Israel go from their bondage in Egypt. So in a number of these occasions, Pharaoh hardened his own heart. In several occasions, Yahweh judicially hardened Pharaoh's heart even more so in response to Pharaoh's hardening of his own heart. And what we've learned so far in our study through Exodus is that after nine plagues, Pharaoh never relented and let the sons of Israel go. A couple weeks ago in Exodus chapter 11, there's a warning of the final plague and there's a recounting or a summary of the previous nine plagues in Exodus 11. And then last week, our brother Lance went through Exodus chapter 12 verses 1 through 20, which is a single scene. It's a single scene where Yahweh is giving instructions and details to Moses and Aaron about this final plague and what the sons of Israel needed to do so that this final plague, you can see it in the bottom right, the death of the firstborn, so that that final plague would not impact the firstborn of the sons of Israel should they trust and obey Yahweh's instructions. And Exodus chapter 12, verses 1 to 20, also begins to describe a... a a motif, a, 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 a symbol, if you will, of the substitutionary death of a lamb without blemish for in exchange for the firstborn, and here in Exodus 12, in exchange for the firstborn of the sons of Israel. But the point is, redemption has a price. Redemption has a price. And in light of Yahweh's promise, if you will, in Exodus 11, that he's going to bring this final devastating plague, and then Pharaoh would let the sons of Israel go. And we have all the details that we heard last week from Lance about the details of this Passover evening and, and the meticulous details about how it needed to be celebrated. The animal, the meal, what they were wearing, how they were supposed to cook the lamb, everything, very meticulous. So the question really is at this point, what practical steps would Yahweh cause to occur in relation to this final plague that will ultimately lead to the release of the sons of Israel from bondage in Egypt. And in Exodus chapter 12, verses 21 to 30, Moses recounts three critical events related to this final plague that will ultimately result in the release of the sons of Israel from bondage in Egypt. So if your Bibles aren't already open to Exodus chapter 12, please open them there. And we're going to pick it up in Exodus chapter 12, verse 21. And I'll read down through verse 30, which is our text for today. Exodus 12, 21. Then Moses called for all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and take for yourselves lambs according to your families and slay the Passover lamb. You shall take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood which is in the basin and apply some of the blood that is in the basin to the lintel and the two doorposts. And none of you shall go outside the door of his house until morning. 
For the Lord will pass through to smite the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord, Yahweh, will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to come into your houses to smite you. And you shall observe this event as an ordinance for you and your children forever. When you enter the land which Yahweh will give you as he has promised, you shall observe this right. And when your children say to you, what does this right mean to you? You shall say, it is a Passover sacrifice to Yahweh who passed over the houses of the sons of Israel in Egypt when he smote the Egyptians but spared our homes. And the people bowed low and worshiped. Then the sons of Israel went and did so, just as Yahweh had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. Now it came about at midnight that Yahweh struck all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of cattle. Pharaoh arose in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was no home where there was not someone dead. So our theme for our message today is faithful trust in and submission to Yahweh's instructions for deliverance through the blood of the Lamb provides covering for God's wrath, freedom from bondage, and needs to be regularly commemorated. And we can ask another question. Why, why did the Holy Spirit include this narrative portion of Exodus? What is the purpose of this being in the scripture? Well, there are many, but one thing that really came to mind is to introduce the reader to the concept that the blood of a lamb without blemish is required for covering from God's wrath and freedom from slavery to a foreign master. We heard about slavery to a foreign master in the service this morning, that before we were Christians, we were slaves of sin and Satan. So don't miss the picture that we have here with the Passover as being a picture of conversion itself. But our passage today can be broken down into three main sections. Section number one, verses 21 to 27, Moses conveys Yahweh's instructions to the elders of Israel. Moses conveys Yahweh's instructions to the elders of Israel. Main point number two, the Israelites' faithful, precise obedience emphasized, and that's in verse 28. The Israelites' faithful, precise obedience emphasized. And last main point, the tenth and final plague strikes Egypt, and that's verses 29 through 30. We'll hopefully have time for a little bonus material, which is Yahweh's revelation of himself in the plague narratives. Hopefully we'll have time to get there But our first point is Yahweh conveys, or Moses conveys Yahweh's instructions to the elders of Israel. And so 
after Yahweh is finished instructing Moses and Aaron about the details of the final plague, the Passover celebration, and the Feast of Unleavened Bread in Exodus 12, verses 1 through 20, verse 21, we have a scene change. It says, then Moses called for all the elders of Israel and said to them, and that's where we are going to pick up things this morning. And in, to break it down a little further, in verses 21 to 27, the first part of that, verses 21 to 23, is Moses conveying Yahweh's instructions about the current Passover that they were about to participate in, to partake in. Verses 24 to 27 is Moses conveying Yahweh's instructions to the elders of Israel about future Passovers, future commemorations of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So, as we start in here, let's look at the details of the present Passover rite. The details of the present Passover rite, verses 21 to 23 of Exodus 12. Then Moses called for all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and take for yourselves lambs according to your families and slay the Passover lamb. You shall take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood which is in the basin and apply some of the blood that is in the basin to the lintel and the two doorposts. And none of you shall go outside the door of his house until morning. For the Lord will pass through to smite the Egyptians. And when he sees blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord, Yahweh, will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to come into your houses to smite you. So what we really have here, remember, this is Moses now recounting Yahweh's instructions to the elders of Israel. And it's abbreviated here. Verses uh, 1 through 13 of Exodus 12 had very detailed instructions and probably as a writer and as a narrator to avoid being completely redundant Moses abbreviates it here but he does highlight a series of commands in verses 21 and 22 he says go and take for yourself a lamb according to your families Lance taught about that last week that if your family was too small you could pair up with your neighbor so go take for yourselves a lamb according to your families. Verse 21 also says, and slay or kill the Passover lamb. Notice in your New American Standard, the word lamb at the end of 20, uh, verse 21 is in italics. It's added by the translators. It's really the Passover. Kill the Passover. It's a sacrifice. The Passover lamb is the source of blood that will be applied to the doorpost and the lintel above the door to consecrate the homes of the sons of Israel so that when the destroyer comes, they will pass by that house and not kill the firstborn. Yahweh also says in the instruction conveyed by Moses, verse 22, take a bunch of hyssop. Hyssop is like a flowery herb. I actually tried to go find a sort of equivalent of hyssop at Central Market yesterday, and there was nothing that was really going to work. I wanted some props. Hyssop is like a, 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 there's like a stalk and then a bushy flowery top. It's like an ancient paintbrush, if you will. And the instruction is take the hyssop, dip it in the blood that's in the basin, where, and that's where the blood of the lamb would have been collected. Dip the hyssop in there and then spread it on the doorposts and the lintel of your home. That's kind of what it might look like. 
So you have some blood of the lamb spread on the two doorposts and the lintel, which is above the door. And I guess that's some hyssop there in this mock-up. And at the end of verse 22, there is actually a negative command as part of this series of commands that Moses is relaying here. None of you shall go outside the door of his house until morning. Well, what's interesting too is there are some additional commands here in verses 21 and 22 that don't appear in Exodus 12, 1 through 20. It doesn't mean that Yahweh didn't tell Moses and Aaron about these commands. It might be that Moses added them here so that the reader didn't feel like everything was redundant to keep their attention perhaps. But there's several things that we see in verses 21 and 22. The basin, the basin was not featured in the first 14, 13 verses of Exodus 12 in particular. That's like a, a standalone sink, a giant bowl where the lamb's blood would be drained and they would use that to apply to the doorposts. The bunch of hyssop, earlier in Exodus 12, it just said spread the blood on the doorpost, didn't mention hyssop. And this point about no one going outside until morning was also added here in our text. Why is it that no one of the sons of Israel should go outside until morning? Well, another point, there's going to be some selective protection, selective protection going on. Look at verse 23 with me. For Yahweh will pass through to smite the Egyptians, and when he sees blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, Yahweh will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to come into your houses to smite you. So Yahweh is going to be passing through or traversing all of Egypt. We need to think about Yahweh's omnipresence here. This Passover event, this, this, this final plague is going to happen on one night. There are hundreds of thousands of families just of the sons of Israel. Who knows how many more there are of the Egyptians. And to actually physically go door to door in one night for that many people is impossible. But it's not impossible for Yahweh who is omnipresent. So he's saying, I'm going to be going all over through here. And the, the destroyer is going to be uh, killing people who do not have, or the firstborn, who do not have the blood on the doorposts and the lintel. So stay inside. You don't need to be messing around going outside. And when Yahweh sees the blood, when he's passing through and he sees the blood, he's not going to allow the destroyer to come into the homes of the sons of Israel to kill the firstborn. Now, this is an important point I don't want to miss. It says when he sees the blood. Yahweh needs to see the blood. It is not enough to agree with the instructions. It is not enough to, in your heart, feel like you put blood on the doorpost. This is a requirement for actual obedience here. Actual obedience. And even more so, it's a requirement for actual obedience in the details because that blood can't just be smeared wherever you want. It has to be on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the door. So there is obedience here, actual obedience, the blood being properly applied. And when Yahweh passes through Egypt on that night and sees the blood on the doorpost and on the lintel, he will pass over the door and not allow the destroyer to come into the houses to smite the sons of Israel. No smiting, no judgment. 
Now, one of the things I would love to dig a lot more deeply into is this question, who is the destroyer? Unfortunately, we don't have a lot of time for that. Let me just say this. In my studies, with confirmation from a number of solid commentators, the, the destroyer is most likely the angel of the Lord, the angel of Yahweh. And the angel of Yahweh is a pre-incarnate appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ. So, the destroyer, in all likelihood, is a pre-incarnate appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. So, that is Moses conveying Yahweh's instructions to the elders of the sons of Israel about the immediate upcoming Passover event. But as we move on to verses 24 to 27, Moses is now going to convey to the elders of the sons of Israel the instructions about future commemoration of this Passover event, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So we have the demand for perpetual Passover remembrance in Exodus 12, verses 24 to 27. Let me read that. And you shall observe this event as an ordinance for you and your children forever. When you enter the land which Yahweh will give you as he has promised, you shall observe this rite. And when your children say to you, what does this rite mean to you? You shall say, it is a Passover sacrifice to Yahweh who passed over the houses of the sons of Israel in Egypt when he smote the Egyptians but spared our homes. And the people bowed low and worshiped. So this is about a demand for perpetual Passover remembrance. And one subpoint: future generational observance. Future generational observance, verses 24 and 25. You shall observe this event as an ordinance for you and your children forever. When you enter into the land which the Lord will give you, hasn't happened yet, he will give you, as he promised, you shall observe this right. So it's to be done in the future and the amazing thing is the way, the reference, the way it's being described, a fancy theological term, it's almost proleptic in nature. It's being spoken of, it's a future event being spoken of as if it's already happened. It's so certain that it will happen. So there's going to be future generational observance. This Passover event, the current one, will happen. And all the things that Yahweh has said, Pharaoh's going to let you go and I'm going to take you to the promised land. It will happen. The sons of Israel are to observe the Passover, Feast of Unleavened Bread, now here in Egypt as they are on their 40-year journey through the wilderness in the Exodus. And when they reach the promised land, they are to observe it and keep observing it annually, as Lance taught us last week. So Moses is conveying Yahweh's instructions for this future faithful celebration of the Passover event. There needs to be generational observance, but there also needs to be future generational teaching and learning. So read with me verses 26 and 27. When your children say to you, what does this right mean to you? You shall say, it is a Passover sacrifice to Yahweh who passed over the houses of the sons of Israel in Egypt when he smote the Egyptians but spared our homes. So making sure that this ordinance is continually remembered by the sons of Israel, you need to teach the next generation about it and why it's important and what it means. 
And that's what Yahweh is getting at here. And he says, so the question would be posed when your child asks you, what does this right mean to you? Yahweh tells them, he says, you shall say. The God-ordained response is, it is a Passover sacrifice to Yahweh who passed over the houses of the sons of Israel in Egypt when he smote the Egyptians but spared our homes. So there's some key points here. First, the Passover, the lamb, is a sacrifice to Yahweh. Commentators Kyle and Dalich say this, the preservation from the stroke of the destroyer from which the feast received its name was the commencement of their redemption from the bondage of Egypt and their elevation into the nation of Jehovah. The blood of the paschal lamb was atoning blood for the Passover was a sacrifice which combined in itself the signification of the future sin offerings and peace offerings. In other words, which showed both expiation and quickening fellowship with God. The smearing of the houses of the Israelites with the atoning blood of the sacrifice set forth the reconciliation of Israel and its God through the forgiveness and expiation of its sins. The Passover lamb is a sacrifice. And that raises a few questions. Why was a blood sacrifice needed for the sons of Israel here and now? And wasn't the blood on the doorpost and on the lintel just a distinguishing mark so that when Yahweh and the destroyer went through it, uh, Egypt, they would see the houses that were marked and not send the destroyer in to kill the firstborn? Not quite. It was far more. The blood was far more than just a distinguishing mark. The sons of Israel were rebellious. They were sinners. Remember what happened after Moses and Aaron first went to Pharaoh in Exodus chapter 5. First went to Pharaoh and said, you need to let our people go. And Pharaoh's like, yeah, right, whatever. And, Yahweh, uh, and Moses and Aaron go back to the sons of Israel and Pharaoh made things worse for them. He made the, the bondage, the, the slave labor more severe. And then the sons of Israel grumbled to Moses and Aaron and says, look what you guys did. And even later on, in Exodus chapter 6, Moses again trying to convey some details to the sons of Israel. They weren't even listening to him because they were so despondent about their bondage. They were rebellious sinners for sure. But there's even more than that. They were stuck in an Egyptian pagan culture for over 400 years they were exposed to these false gods and this false system of worship constantly for 400 plus years but how do we know that there was idolatry among the sons of Israel while they were in Egypt well Joshua chapter 24 Joshua chapter 24. Why don't you turn there? Joshua 24, 14. And while you're turning there, Joshua 24, at the beginning of the chapter, Joshua is essentially summarizing or recounting the history of Israel from the time of Abraham up to his then present time. And in chapter 24, verse 14 of Joshua, Joshua says this, 
Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and truth and put away the gods which your fathers served beyond the river and where? In Egypt and serve the Lord. And you know what? Joshua was there. He saw this all firsthand. This is not Joshua. This is not hearsay. Joshua had firsthand knowledge that the sons of Israel, some of them were idolatrous or had idolatrous leanings in their hearts. But back to Exodus chapter 12, before Yahweh redeems the nation from the slavery to Pharaoh in Egypt and this infatuation, if you will, with the false Egyptian gods, Yahweh needed to cleanse them from their sins and their idolatry by a sacrifice. Because ultimately, he's going to enter into a covenant with them in Exodus 19, and he wants his people at least beginning to be clean. So the Passover is a sacrifice to Yahweh for sin. Another interesting word in Exodus chapter 12, back in verse, uh, chapter 12, verse 27, uses the word, it says that Yahweh, when he sees the blood, he passes over the houses of the sons of Israel in Egypt when he smote the Egyptians, but spared our homes, verse 27, spared, delivered. He, he, he passed by, he delivered the sons of Israel from that final plague. So the response to that child's question in the future is to effectively say, we do this to commemorate Yahweh graciously sparing us from, delivering us from not only our own sins, not only the final plague in Egypt, but Egyptian bondage and bondage to a foreign master overall. So it is necessary to instruct the future generation so they understand the importance of the ceremony that the nation has been commanded to perpetually observe. So we have future generational observance. We have future generational teaching and learning. We also have future generational submission Future generational submission. A little bit back in verses 25 and 26. Moses conveying Yahweh's instructions about future uh, Passover slash unleavened bread says, When you enter the land which Yahweh will give you as he has promised, you shall observe this right. And when your children say to you, what does this right mean to you? That word right in verses 25 and 26 It's a translation of a Hebrew word, ha'abodah. And that Hebrew word can also mean service, like you're serving somebody or serving like in a capacity like serving in a church. It's also occasionally translated slave or slavery. It's a word that is used of labor and hard labor like the Israelites were going through in Egypt with the mortar and the bricks. We saw this word in Exodus 1.14, The word's also uh, translated as bondage in Exodus 2.23, Exodus 6.6, and Exodus 6.9. Does anyone have a Legacy Standard Bible? How's it translated in the Legacy Standard Bible? New slavery. Very interesting word choice translation. It's translated as new slavery to indicate 
that this, there's an element of Yahweh's redemption of the sons of Israel in this narrative that is, it's really an exchange of slaveries. We heard Pastor Tom talk about this a little bit this morning in the context of communion. There's an exchange of slaveries. They're exchanging the old slavery to Pharaoh and the Egyptians for a new slavery to Yahweh as they leave Egypt and go to the promised land. They were going from being slaves of Pharaoh to being slaves of Yahweh. It's a new slavery. And that is really a key point to understand in the overall theme of the book of Exodus that we as readers should pay attention to. It is a redemption from the slavery in Egypt, not to do whatever they want. It's so that they will be slaves and submitted to the one true and living God, Yahweh. We got some church bells, good. So uh, one quote, uh, one commentator, T. Desmond Alexander says, due to the Passover, service undertaken by the Israelites moves from being rendered to Pharaoh to Yahweh. With good reason, the Israelites are expected to recall this life-transforming occasion, end quote. Now, for us as Christians, the Passover is a picture of conversion. It's a picture of salvation in Christ. Once we obey the gospel by faith and are cleansed from our sins by the blood of the Lamb, God's wrath for our sins, in a sense, passes over us. We've been freed from sin. We exchange our old slavery to sin and Satan for a new slavery to Christ. Turn to Romans chapter 6, if you would. Romans chapter 6, just a little bit more on this point about this new slavery, this exchange of slaveries. Romans chapter 6, pick it up in verse 17. Paul says, But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed, and having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. And just drop down a little bit to verse 22 of chapter 6, Paul says, but now having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit resulting in sanctification and the outcome eternal life. The Passover is a picture, a forward-looking picture of salvation in Christ, an exchange of slaveries made possible by God's grace and the blood of a lamb in Egypt, but for believers, the blood of the lamb. So again, I would encourage everyone to just study Exodus 12. It is an amazing, rich, deep section of scripture. Now that brings us to the end of verse 27 here in our Exodus, back in Exodus chapter 12. We've had the instructions about the current Passover conveyed by Moses to the elders of the sons of Israel. We've had the instructions about future commemoration given by Moses to the elders of the sons of Israel. And right at the end of verse 27, this is the response of the elders of the sons of Israel, fourth point under this heading, present, as opposed to future, present corporate submission. Present corporate submission. And the people, after receiving all these instructions, bowed low and worshiped. That's indicative of just complete faith 
and trust in what they had just heard. They believe it. They have faith in it. They're going to do it. They're submitted to it. So when the child asks, what does this right mean to you? The response Yahweh requires not only tells the reader, you know, that what the parents need to say, that this is, uh, you know, you need to say it's a Passover sacrifice to the Lord, etc., but it's really about a bigger picture that the, the final plague is about to happen. The final plague is about to happen and you will be spared. This is really a masterful transition in the narrative by Moses, the way he wrote it. He's written everything as if it's already going to happen. And so he's now transitioning to our second main point in our outline, the Israelites' faithful, precise obedience emphasized. So they've received all these instructions. Moses has passed them on to the elders of the sons of Israel. And the elders would have then disseminated those instructions further down to like the household level. Kind of like ancient social media. The elders will tell the heads of the clans. The heads of the clans will tell the heads of the families. Heads of the families will tell the heads of the households. Ancient social media. And (laughs) so in verse 28, we have the Israelites' faithful, precise obedience emphasize. Look what it says. Then the narrative begins to move forward. Then the sons of Israel went and did so just as Yahweh had commanded Moses and Aaron. So they did. The narrative moves forward and they did just what Yahweh instructed. And you know, it would have been enough for Moses to just say, all right, I've given all the instructions and they obeyed. But no, he actually repeats it again. He says, Then the sons of Israel went and did so. And he adds, for repetition, repetition for emphasis, just as Yahweh had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. He's really emphasizing their obedience here. He's emphasizing their specific obedience. They're not quibbling with any of this. Fairly uncommon for the Israelites, as we will see later on as we go through uh, Exodus and beyond. I don't want to make too much of uh, verse 28. T. Desmond Alexander very succinctly says, the brevity with which this is stated implies unquestioning obedience and the reader is expected to assume that everything was done according to the instructions given. So their obedience was faithful, it was emphatic, it was precise, it was detailed. So I want to just touch on each of these points. Faithful obedience. There might be a tendency to think that because the Israelites obeyed and did all these things, they sort of earned their redemption. That is not the case at all. Their redemption was based on their faith and trust in the instructions that Yahweh gave. Think about this. He is, the the command is you need to get this unblemished lamb You need to let it live with you for four days. Then you need to kill it. Then you need to spread its blood with a bunch of hyssop on the doorpost and lintel of your house. Then you need to cook it in a very specific way. You need to wear very specific things and you need to be ready to go. And the sort of trade-off is, I'm not going to allow the destroyer to come into your houses to smite you. There's not really a, a clear connection between those two things at all. It's not like if I walked up to a young person in church later and said, hey, if you want to uh, make 20 bucks, you can come mow my lawn. You know, I mean, that, that young man might say or, or woman might say, 
he'll probably pay. There's a, a, a direct connection there. If I mow the lawn, I'll make $20. Here it's like, if I get this lamb and I kill this lamb and spread the blood, it's, it, there's, there's faith here because it's a very unusual request for an enormous result. So it's a significant act of faith. Hebrews 11.28 about Moses says, By faith he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of the blood so that he who destroyed the firstborn would not touch them. It was an act of faith. And not only was the obedience of the sons of Israel faithful, but it was also emphatic, emphatic obedience. The obedience of the sons of Israel, it's, it's emphasized by Moses in the text. He says, then the sons of Israel went and did so. I gave them all these instructions, they went and did so. And he repeats, just as Yahweh commanded Moses and Aaron, so the sons of Israel did. So there's emphasis. And again, no quibbling. This was not partial obedience. There was no questioning going on. It was clear, emphatic, complete obedience. And it was also obedience in the details. A few months ago, I think I taught on Exodus chapter 9 when uh, Moses and Aaron threw the soot from the kiln in the air before the plague of the boils. And I made mention of the fact that our obedience needs to be in the details. We can't just sort of finesse how we want to obey God. If God gives instructions, we need to obey his instructions in the details, and that's what the sons of Israel did here. It was faithful, it was emphatic, it was specific, it was precise. They obeyed all of the instructions that Yahweh gave them on this occasion, and our obedience needs to be the same way. This is now a very big moment, if you really think about it, because the instructions have been given, the sons of Israel did what they were supposed to do, and now our final point, the 10th and final plague strikes Egypt. Verses 29 and 30. Now it came about at midnight on Nisan 14 that Yahweh struck all the firstborn in the land of Egypt from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of cattle. Pharaoh arose in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was no home where there was not someone dead. So back to our plague slide. This might be the last time we get to use this. This has become our friend. You know, this is the 10 plagues, and in the lower right, I've put a box around the plague of the firstborn. Every firstborn son and firstborn of cattle in Egypt dies. And ultimately, Pharaoh will let the Israelites go. And this is at midnight. This is why I was pointing out Yahweh's omniscience. He's not going to be looking for blood on hundreds of thousands of houses in the span of a couple hours. He's omnipresent. I think I said omniscience. He's omnipresent. He is omniscient too. But he's omnipresent and he can see all the houses at once, at midnight, And Yahweh struck all the firstborn in the land of Egypt who did not have blood, the blood of the lamb, a lamb, on the doorpost and on the lintel of the house. And those in Egypt who were struck ranged from the greatest, Pharaoh, verse 29, Pharaoh who sat on his throne, his firstborn was killed. 
to the least, the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon, and even animals, the firstborn of cattle. This 10th plague was comprehensive and devastating. Pharaoh, his servants, and all the Egyptians arose in the night. That 10th plague took place on one night. And there was a great collective cry in Egypt because this plague affected every Egyptian household. And the 10th plague reflects Yahweh's wrath, Yahweh's justice, Yahweh's faithfulness as he follows through on what he said he would do. If, as it says in Exodus 10.3, how long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? That was said to Pharaoh. How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Yahweh said he was going to do this, and he was faithful to his word. He did. In fact, in Exodus chapter 4, verses 22 and 23, when before they, Moses and Aaron had ever gone to Pharaoh and Yahweh is giving instructions to Moses, he says, Then you will say to Pharaoh, this is what Yahweh says, Israel is my firstborn son. I told you, speaking to, you know, Moses speaking for Yahweh to Pharaoh, I told you, let my son go that he may worship me, but you refused to let him go. Now I will kill your firstborn son. Yahweh did that. He was faithful to his word. He is trustworthy. Yahweh judged Pharaoh's rebelliousness and his stubbornness and his pride. Yahweh judged Egypt's entire system of false gods and false worship. Exodus 12.12 says, Against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. And we'll get there, but we know Exodus chapter 20, the Ten Commandments, you shall have no other gods before me, no idols. This was a devastating plague. So in light of all of the details and the plague narratives that we've studied over the last number of months, what can we learn about Yahweh? So Yahweh's revelation of himself in the plague narratives, Yahweh's revelation of himself in the plague narratives, multiple times through these narratives, we have pointed out that the primary goal of the plague narratives is for Yahweh to make himself known to the participants in the narrative. That means Pharaoh. That means the Egyptians. That means Moses. That means Aaron. That means the sons of Israel. That means us as readers. And in the plague narratives, we see God's attributes on display big time. I've listed a few. I put at least there. God's sovereignty, his sovereign plan and these instructions that he gave to Moses and Aaron and that they then conveyed to the sons of Israel and that the sons of Israel obeyed. God's sovereignty in his plans. We see God's mercy in the fact that he refrained from punishing the sons of Israel for their sins through the blood of a lamb. We see God's grace in that even though they were sinners, he still showed grace and essentially chose them over the Egyptians. That's also faithfulness, faithfulness to his promise to Abraham in Genesis 12, but it's also faithfulness to what I just read in Exodus chapter 4. He said, if Yahweh doesn't 
let you guys go. I'm going to kill his firstborn son. God is faithful. We also see God's patience with the Israelites. Remember, they were grumbling. They were rebellious. Things became worse from them when Moses and Aaron first went to Pharaoh. But as they saw these plagues, one after the other, and how those plagues did not affect them and only affected the Egyptians, their faith grew. Their trust in Yahweh grew. So God was patient with them until they got to that place where they would faithfully obey. We also mentioned God's omnipotence and omnipresence and that he was going through all Egypt on one night looking for blood on doorposts. We see God's justice and God's supremacy. He judged the gods of Egypt. We see God's holiness and that he not only judged Egypt's false gods and false religious system, but he also, back in Exodus 12, 12, he says, against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. And then he adds, I am Yahweh. He stands alone. He is set apart and separate. He alone is God. So he's shown us his holiness through the plague narratives. Obviously, we see God's wrath in the plague narratives. Wrath towards Pharaoh. Wrath toward the false gods of Egypt. Wrath towards false gods everywhere. And people who pursue false gods. Pursue worshiping false gods. Yahweh emphatically told the world that night with the 10th plague that there is no God besides him. He is the supreme, sovereign, holy, righteous, just, omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent creator God of the universe. There is no other. And in all of that and more, we should also see the glory of God and the glory of Jesus Christ. Yahweh showed everyone who he is through these plague narratives. T. Desmond Alexander again says, quote, Undoubtedly, New Testament writers interpret the death of Jesus as bringing about a new exodus that entails people being freed from the power of Satan and ransomed from the domain of death. I come back to my stepfather's father's Bible. It seemed like someone was trying to reach out to him with the good news of Jesus Christ. Christ, our Passover, is sacrifice for us. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is indeed Christ, the Savior of the world. And just as Israel, in the Exodus narrative, in Exodus 12, by faith, trusted obeyed Yahweh's specific instructions about being delivered from that final strike, that final plague against the firstborn in Egypt. Just like Israel, by faith, obeyed Yahweh, each, of, each person, whoever lives, needs to obey Yahweh's instructions about how to be made right with him through repentance from sins and faith in Jesus Christ. That's the only way to avoid Yahweh's final strike on our life for eternity. If we don't repent and believe in Jesus Christ, we will get that final strike that will have us wind up in hell forever. And as the sons of Israel, by grace, exchanged their slavery to Pharaoh for slavery to Yahweh, likewise, if there's anybody in this room that has not already done so, 
Exchange your slavery to sin and to Satan for slavery to Jesus Christ. And do that by repenting of your sins as we saw in our service this morning. Not the consequences of your sins. That's why there was that great cry in Exodus 12.30. There was the consequences of what they were doing. They didn't repent. They were upset about the consequences of their sins. No, we need to repent about the sins themselves. And the fact that we are sinners. And realize that there is no hope for us. No hope for a joyful eternity with God and with Jesus unless we repent and turn in faith and trust to the one true Passover lamb who shed his blood to atone for the sins of everybody who would ever believe. That is Christ our Passover, the Lord Jesus Christ. And there are some take-home lessons on your handout. I'm going to bypass those. I was very stricken by everything that went on in that first service today and how much it related to what we talked about. Think about the song, stricken, smitten, afflicted. Think about at the cross, at the cross, I surrender my life. I am in awe of you. Where your love ran red and my sin washed white, I owe all to you. I owe all to you, Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, your word is unfathomable. It has a depth that we will never find. Lord, Exodus chapter 12 is an amazing account, really of instructions that you gave to your people, Israel, in the Old Testament, to avoid the death of the firstborn in that final plague. There is so much more to it than that. Lord, I just want to land on the fact that the Passover is a picture of conversion. It's a picture of salvation. It should be even for us. We do not celebrate Passover anymore. The Lord Jesus transformed that into a not a remembrance of the redemption of the Israelites from bondage in Egypt, but he transformed it to our redemption from our slavery to sin and Satan through his blood. Lord, I just want to focus on the joy that we as believers should have and need to have by seeing these amazing pictures in your word 1,500 years before Christ that so clearly implicate our salvation in Christ. Lord, we are so grateful for your word. It just fills us with joy, fills us with encouragement. We see the faithfulness, at least then, of the sons of Israel. May we be faithful in obeying you in the details and bring glory to you, but may we also just rejoice in your grace and goodness to us at the cross where your love ran red and our sins were washed white. We pray this all in Jesus' name for your glory. Amen.